Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. We are here the week of August 22nd through two, August 25th, 2023. Um, we're going to be talking about the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions, Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions. We got a couple this week from Nebraska Supreme Court. Let's start with the ex parte summary. Carson. First case we have is State v. Mabior and ex parte summary prosecutorial misconduct state v buell it's a, a county court appeal and some process there dui sufficiency are you ready yeah i guess we can kick it off i kind of just bolted through that i was I? gonna say yeah we don't even <laughs> I, yeah there's no for the people um you know who i'm talking to mostly family members of mine for you know whatever reason they decide to still this listen is to their this. chance to yeah. catch up on Carson. Well, yeah they, well this was their chance to they say that they they listen for the two minutes of us in the start and the oh. two minutes of us at the finish uh, you i guess you're let down so um yeah sorry that one's on me um I guess we'll we'll uh, bury the lead. Maybe we'll talk more at the end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Let's get right into right. Nebraska Supreme Jumping Court. Jumping in, State v. Mabior. Uh, this is an appeal from the District Court of Douglas County, and the underlying case here is a double homicide that happened in, and I can't remember year twenty twenty one. Basically, what happens? A couple of individuals are shot. There is video of this from a camera. Um, it catches a Dodge Charger that's eventually connected to an individual, uh, Mavior, who um, is alleged to have done the killing. And police interview him, are able to somewhat figure out the story of what happened here. Eventually there's a trial and Mavior is convicted of both uh, murders. And couple of things that are addressed here and and again i'm going to gloss over a lot of this but uh, the big things on appeal that are dealt with are uh, the first thing is there was evidence of a prior shooting interestingly enough between one of the victims who died and uh, mabior and this shooting had a had apparently occurred multiple years prior between these two individuals in Dallas, Texas, and resulted in one of these guys getting shot in the buttocks, and they recovered that bullet when they did the autopsy after he had passed. And so they introduced the evidence of this prior shooting and altercation, and the the question here is whether it's 404 evidence, whether this should be um, allowed in, and of course on appeal it's being argued that it shouldn't have uh, been allowed in. And the standard here is whether or not it is uh, inextricably intertwined evidence uh, that is so blended and part of the crime uh, that it would um, necessarily require um, it to uh, be part of this as opposed to just being uh, evidence of a prior uh, crime or bad act. And here, since it was the same individuals, which that has to be one of the the craziest fact patterns you hear. There was no crime yeah, that it was charged out of this, but this was a prior altercation that had happened. Uh, they're basically saying, you know, this isn't even really a, a 404 uh, evidence problem, and there's no uh, merit to the argument that this evidence shouldn't have came in. And then, of course, they go through the 403 weighing test with uh, prejudicial and probative and eventually find that this evidence should have came in. So there's a good discussion of evidence there. The other big thing that I want to hit that that seemed to be the crux of the issue on appeal was prosecutorial misconduct. And one of the big issues here was that the prosecutor allegedly continually vouched um, for the 
uh, law enforcement and for other individuals and used a lot of we and our um, continually throughout the trial, I think, and I'm losing the number, but I believe it was like over 40 times. And on appeal, uh, the Supreme Court basically says that some of the we's could have meant like everyone in the courtroom, everyone who was at the trial on that day, but some of the other we's and ours were directly making it like the state was connected to the actual investigation and prosecution of this crime, that they were involved with it from the start. And the interesting piece of that on appeal is that eventually everything that goes through, uh, there were multiple other issues of um, alleged ineffective assistance of counsel. The record, for the most part, it seems like wasn't complete enough to address a lot of those. So a lot of those things aren't dealt with or weren't dealt with as not being error. But eventually we come to this conclusion. And uh, what happens is, Interestingly enough, Justice Castle writes a, a short concurrence that uh, Justice Miller-Lehrman also joins, basically where they're saying here this vouching issue is presented as an issue of plain error. And so there were no objections at the time that these things were happening. And basically, uh, the only way it could have been reversed is if it was a miscarriage of justice. But, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm reading a little bit here between um, the lines and also the Chief Justice joined on this also. But... Um, is that had there been an objection, this may have very well uh, been something where it could have been reversible, but because it was only on that plain air standard, there was no reversal. And so maybe this is an issue where, you know, if you're seeing some of this that you think is prosecutorial misconduct, again, have to object to preserve that, um, to preserve that issue for appeal and make it that higher standard of review or lower standard of review versus just uh, the plain air. The other issue that was dealt with was the fact that the uh, judge had sentenced the uh, individual to uh, life without the possibility of parole. And here, since it was a conviction under two class 1A felonies, the punishment is uh, life in, pres in prison, but the statute does not authorize um, a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. And so there was um, a uh, modification of that sentence um, because it was um, it was invalid but not void um, to pronounce that sentence with out the uh, possibility of parole, but otherwise affirmed. All right. I had State v. Boole. Timothy Boole was convicted of driving under the influence open container and careless driving after a bench trial in a county court. Um, the appeal was taken from the county court to a um, district court, and the only issue in the um, statement of errors was a sufficiency of evidence to convict him of the DUI. Upon the district court reviewing the matter, the district court actually looked at uh, the open container and the careless driving charge in addition to the DUI and found that there was sufficient evidence on all three matters and affirmed the county court decision. So this got appealed to the Nebraska Court of Appeals and then the Nebraska Supreme Court picked it up. I, I'm not sure exactly why, but it, there is some very good discussion here about um, the finer points of a statement of errors and whether those should be treated as basically assignments of error and whether you can use the same rules for statement of errors that you do for assignments of errors. This case seems to suggest, at least upon my reading, that it does. It also suggests that district courts have a little discretion in what they want to look at um, as far as the record is concerned when you're coming from county court up to district court. So it uh, gives some procedural clarification on those matters. It also goes into, you know, 
the evidence necessary for a driving under the influence conviction and a uh, question about the element of timing and when is the uh, under the influence factor need to be with the proximity and timing to the operation of the motor vehicle. Here, um, you know, just because law enforcement might come after an accident or after a uh, individual was driving in an operation of a motor vehicle, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that's not um, sufficient evidence in order to convict the individual beyond a reasonable doubt. So the element is the uh, timing of the operation uh, of the motor vehicle under the influence, and that can be inferred from other factors. So that's something that can also be taken away from this case, but basically it goes through the procedural factors for appealing from a county court to a district court, and then um, some of the little clarifications that it's making under the driving under the influence elements. Otherwise, it is affirmed, and that is it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. I think we need to start with the Nebraska Court of Appeals. Yeah, I think we're jumping straight into the Nebraska Court of Appeals, and we start with Shandera versus Schultz, and this is an appeal from um, an order of a district court overruling uh, a counter complaint for modification of custody and removal of minor child. And basically the issue here is whether or not there was a material change in circumstances. So again, I'm not going to go into a ton of these facts, but basically it's the standard is seeing if uh, there is enough of a material change in circumstances that the trial court would have uh, changed their analysis and looked at this uh, case differently and their order differently. And here again, we go through a lot of facts regarding parties moving, changing in jobs, stability, homes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so again, a good discussion of those facts and something that uh, you can fall back on if you have one of those material change in circumstance issues and any kind of modification of, of custody, parenting time, anything like that. Uh, but eventually, the Court of Appeals looks at this, um, analyzes it, and says, uh, you know, we don't find that the district court has um, abused its discretion in denying uh, this amended co counter complaint to modify custody and affirms. All right. State v. Reyna. Uh, this is a county court case from Madison County. Um, seventh Judicial. The fight in seventh. Miss it up there. Good people. <laughs> Good, good times. People. Good times. Good yes. times, Madison County up there. Uh, this individual, uh, I believe it was uh, Zoe Reyna, is uh, convicted of possession of a controlled substance, methamphetamine, following a jury trial, uh, sentenced to one year in jail following the jury trial. The appeal had to do with two issues. One, um, law enforcement found a digital scale um, that had white powdery residue on it. Um, in addition to a pipe in her waistband following a physical pat down um, by a female officer as opposed to the male officer. So they didn't find the pipe when they patted down with the male officer, but with the female officer, they did find the pipe. Um, the digital scale uh, was subject to a motion in limine, which was um, denied its probative. You know, the, there's a probative value is, is very low threshold when it goes to an element of the offense. It could be inferred that the officer testified that folks use digital scales both for possession and distribution of drugs. And uh, so having the digital scale there was moderately probative. And so it, the discretion of the court was to admit it and they admitted it. It was uh, objected to at trial um, in whether to admit that digital scale, but it was ultimately received in evidence. So the digital scale was received, and that was one of the assignments of error on appeal. The second assignment of error was ineffective assistance of counsel because the, um, uh, the appellate 
attorney here was different than the trial attorney and the appellate attorney alleged that the trial attorney failed to raise the pipe planting uh, by law enforcement allegations. So the defendant here indicated that law enforcement planted the pipe on her and uh, that it was ineffective assistance of counsel for her trial counsel not to raise that issue. On the um, scale issue, the Court of Appeals here found no, found no abuse of discretion. Again, went through that very low probative value standard in order to find that the scale was probative of possession and uh, there was no abuse of discretion in receiving the scale. As far as the ineffective assistance of counsel claim, they actually went and looked at the uh, transcript of the closing argument where trial counsel kind of indirectly raised the theory that the uh, pipe was planted um, by indicating that, you know, they didn't find it through cross-examination, indicating that they didn't find the pipe upon the initial search. And then when they did find the pipe, it was over in an area in a changing area where there are no cameras. So they did kind of raise that issue. So they did find enough evidence to say that 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 wasn't an effective assistance to counsel. And the uh, district court conviction and the jury court or jury conviction was affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is Leberski versus Leberski. And this is an appeal from the granting of a domestic abuse protection order against Patricia uh, Leberski, the ex-wife and mother of uh, Jeffrey Leberski's children. Uh, the interesting thing here or or on appeal is that uh, Jeffrey had filed the petition in district court requesting a domestic abuse protection order after Patricia was charged with multiple felony uh, counts of child abuse. And at the hearing, Patricia uh, goes first, calls Jeffrey as uh, her one and only witness, questions him, questions him on multiple uh, issues that were in uh, his petition for the domestic abuse protection order. And at the end of um, the, the testimony by Jeffrey, Patricia's uh, counsel rests, and then it's Jeffrey's opportun- opportunity court asks if he has any uh, other evidence that he intends to offer other than the petition and he says yes uh, i would like to call patricia uh, Leberski. here the court takes a five minute recess comes back and denies the request to call uh, patricia and says basically took a moment to look at this um, and the court believes it has enough information and so i'm not going to let you call her as a witness but i'll allow you both to uh, do closing arguments so after this hearing the district court entered an order granting uh, jeffrey's request for the domestic abuse protection order against patricia and on behalf of him and uh, his minor children and so that's the order that's being appealed here on appeal the court finds that the order should not have been granted uh, interestingly enough and the the basis there is basically that there were not enough specific facts to demonstrate uh, the minimum uh, standard in order to have it granted uh, there were the the abuse charges that existed at that point in time and there were the allegations in the petition but basically uh, the court finds here that they that Jeffrey had not met his burden uh, to have the domestic abuse protection order granted but the other interesting thing on appeal and this is kind of uh, something that we continue to clarify it seems like we have one of these opinions uh, weekly almost now with the domestic abuse or the abuse protection orders and what the court finds here is that it was error in granting the petition but it was also error 
in not allowing Jeffrey, uh, it was plain error, not allowing Jeffrey to have the opportunity to present evidence beyond just his petition and affidavit at the show cause hearing to demonstrate why it should have been granted. And so therefore, the Court of Appeals remands this case uh, in order to give Jeffrey the opportunity to present evidence in favor of the domestic abuse protection order and then to again allow the court uh, the opportunity to evaluate whether or not that should be granted. And so I guess what we're seeing here a little bit is maybe we're starting to flesh out uh, this area of the law, which has some complex uh, issues related to it. But again, one of these things, if you have a domestic abuse protection order and you're looking to cite some case law, maybe or you're looking at the opportunity to to put on some evidence at the end of a show cause hearing. You know, now all of a sudden we have an opinion that's kind of red flagging that as, hey, you know, I have to have the ability to at least put some evidence on so that there's something on appeal for the court to review or so that, you know, there's an opportunity to pre- present more of an, a record, more of a record in case this ever becomes an issue. So uh, another little nugget or interesting case from the Court of Appeals. State v. Miller, this is a speedy trial issue. Uh, Miller was charged with first-degree sexual assault in Furness County. Um, and before the information was filed following the uh, you know binding over from county court, before the information was filed, the uh, defendant filed a motion for discovery around October 13, 2021. Um, in November of 2021, the state filed the information in the matter Um, and so it was filed after the motion for discovery there was no decision made on the motion for discovery that was filed prior to the information now flash for uh, a flash forward is that what you do you flash forward (laughs) fast forward flash forward forward, yeah i think you can do both let's flash forward a little bit Uh, over to over to june 2nd 2022 at the arraignment where the motion for discovery was affirmed and at that hearing the defense counsel made an oral motion for absolute discharge that was scheduled for hearing in july um at the hearing the defendant um, argued that you know i had this uh, motion for discovery sure but it was filed before the information and the statute specifically says um, it's six months after the information is filed. It has nothing to do with whether I filed it before the uh, information was filed or not. So that shouldn't uh, go against and, and toll speedy trial. The district court uh, denied that argument and um, found that uh, speedy trial was told um, because the request for discovery was still pending uh, for about eight months there. So because it was told, um, it was not... Um, Granted, and on appeal, the Court of Appeals found that that was the correct reasoning and that the uh, six months uh, was not was told, and so they still had time to try Mr. Miller. Uh, interestingly here is you can't raise a constitutional speedy trial issue on an interlocutory appeal. So this was just on the statutory um, speedy trial uh, issue. The constitutional stuff would have to wait until a final order was issued because you can't uh, make an interlocutory appeal of that. So that is State v. Miller. It was affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is George v. George, and this is an appeal from the Douglas County District Court on a pro se motion to vacate uh, a dissolution decree. And the interesting piece here is that the district court had denied the motion uh, basically on Uh, actual factual grounds and on appeal the court of appeals goes through the fact that uh, proceedings to vacate or modify judgments or orders um, on the grounds that 
the pro se uh, plaintiff was trying to had to be by complaint, uh, which set forth the judgment order and then laid out the grounds uh, to vacate or modify it. And so then that complaint and summons had to be served uh, onto the opposing party in order to commence the action. And here uh, the attorney did show up um, for the defendant. And at the hearing, though, the attorney basically stated that he had uh, received a proposed scheduling order requiring that he be here on this date and that he was present for the sole purpose of chal- challenging the jurisdiction here. And so that was a not was not enough uh, to convey personal jurisdiction and um, perfect the uh, sufficiency of process of summons. And so therefore, the Court of Appeals um affirmed the district court, but on separate grounds, basically saying that uh, there was never a valid action uh, that occurred here, and there was um, a motion to vacate was not the proper way to attack uh, this particular issue. And so again, a little bit of procedural clarification from the Court of Appeals on um, this this issue of uh, vacating a dissolution decree or modifying a dissolution decree. Uh, so one that could be handy to take a glance at if you have anything like that. Okay, State v. Crystal R. This is in re interest of IVR. Uh, juvenile, this is an adjudication appeal. The adjudication here um, basically revolved around unsanitary conditions of the home. Uh, there was no water in the home. Uh, it was, uh, you know, dirty by law enforcement's testimony standards. And the county court here found by a preponderance of the evidence that, um, you know, it was the uh, mother's fault that the conditions of the home were contrary to the health, safety, welfare, or morals of the children and they adjudicated the children. Now, the appeal here is based on mother's position that reasonable efforts were not provided to basically give her an opportunity to maintain the children in the home, that there was no present uh, risk of harm that couldn't have been resolved through reasonable efforts from the department, that they did not need to remove the children and take them out of the home. Now, um, the court here is very clear that it doesn't have to do with the future risk of harm. There's no need to wait for actual harm to happen to a child. There was sufficient evidence here based on the unsanitary conditions, some statements about some pills being an access of the children, and the fact that they didn't have any water to say that the immediate circumstances were not um, conducive to the children's best interests so that it justified adjudication and justified removal. So it was affirmed here on appeal. There's some good discussion there if you do have an adjudication coming up about what kind of standards there are, and it's a fairly low threshold, it looks like, because of the preponderance of the evidence standard. Anything else? Nope, that's it for me. All right, that's it for this week. What should we talk about? I don't know. There's nothing really to talk about. Nothing in the world going on? Nope, I don't think so. Kind of slow. It is weird season, like right before football starts. Yeah, you can feel it in the air. Good luck to all the uh, high school football players and parents and things that are a lot of them are kicking off um, this weekend. Yeah, high school this this week. Today, tonight. Exactly seven days until. Hopefully, no injuries. Exactly. football. Six days. Next Thursday. Oh, it's Thursday. It's a Thursday. Oh. Thursday night football. Yeah, well, I need to pay better attention. Going to play. Well, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, you don't want to have hope. Hope is what kills. So, so. it's Minnesota, right? So yes. next next week at this time, we will know whether we won or lost. Exactly. 
I suppose a tie. So is that also... this will either be a happy podcast or a sad podcast. Are we still at that where you know Nebraska <laughs> football determines the happiness of the the state? It was. It. Was, I don't know. I think we've all just been resigned to late stage Weezer fans, where we're all just like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Hey, we won one. I guess that's all right. I mean, the good news is our standards are so low at this point that I mean, six and six is success, right? That's a roaring success. If we make a bowl game, that's yeah. I mean. Parades in the street. Absolutely. Yeah. We'd be very pleased with that. Uh, a sports book opened in Grand Island. Did you see that? Really? Well, yeah. Yeah, so you have to go in and gamble, but you can't bet on Nebraska sports, so it doesn't oh. matter. doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. irrelevant. Well, never. Oh, they're going to do the big volleyball game in Memorial Stadium? Yeah, true. Stadium? That actually is something that's relevant. Yeah, so the big volleyball bo- volleyball game, I think the biggest, they're hoping it to be the biggest in at least United States history, and then... Isn't there a concert afterwards? Is that that's what you're going down for, right? Scotty McCrary, isn't that your uh, your jam? Is that the lock them doors and keep yeah. the lights down low guy? Yeah, that's the exact guy. That's the perfect one. Yep. <laughs> Showing my age or ignorance? I don't know. American Idol twenty years ago is that yeah, the same no, guy? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, runner think, up, runner uh, up. Runner I don't up. think he won. He was at UNK once. Really? Yes. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't able to go. All right. That's it for Point Two Law Review for this week. Uh, go back to episode one to listen to the disclaimer. This is brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. Uh, have a great week, everybody. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith.